Good morning. Hey, it's Sunday. Oh, come on. It's Sunday. Woo! Get into God's Word. If you got your Bible, get it out. Get excited. Somebody tell them they're excited to get in God's Word this morning. Yes. Awesome. That's great. No, see, I, you guys know this, man. If you're here the first time, sorry. When you're excited about getting into God's Word, that makes me excited to want to get in it and bring it. So are you excited to get into God's Word this morning? Yes. We have access to the Word of God in our language, available in every, almost every home in this country. It's an incredible thing, a gift given to us by many lives that laid down for that to be possible, right? So let's not take it for granted. It's awesome. Man, it's good. I got friends in the house this morning that came a long way, so it's good to see them. So blessed. Wow. So we're in Judges chapter 2, and you guys are turning to Judges. I'm not going to trick you this morning and make you go somewhere else. Actually go to Judges, because we're going to read in Judges chapter 3. Um, if you guys didn't know this, uh, I grew up in a family. Uh, my, my mom raised us, five kids, and uh, I was almost a middle child. I was basically a middle child. If my sister's watching, I am the favorite, just to make sure we're clear. Um, and so, you know... It's okay. I'm sorry. I just, I just am. Um, but being in almost the middle, um, I, I had this tendency to like observe, like I was the observer, right? They were doing stuff they shouldn't, and I would just sit and watch. And they were doing stuff they should, and I would just sit and watch and, and kind of like let them do it and watch like what was supposed to be done, what you shouldn't do. They would get in trouble for it. Or they would be like praised for doing it, and I would jump in and be like, "Yeah," <laughs> you know. I just could. I, I realized at, at an early age I could kind of get away with that, and I was probably it was, a, it was not a good thing. But I leveraged that as a child, as kids do. Amen. They do it. It's okay. All kids, I think, find some way. And uh, I would I would do this where uh, I remember this one time for Christmas they that the family had wrapped the or my mom had wrapped the Christmas presents and she was hiding them which was always you know it's a task if you have a hidden Christmas presents from that many kids and, and so there's there's five of us there was uh, at the time we had uh, two foster. Uh, family members with us, and they also were there. They got presents as well, so they were hidden. So it was a lot kind of like jammed in, in different corners of the house, and I knew that my siblings were looking for them and opening them and being like, hey, this is what I got, or this is what you got, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and at, you know, as a kid, you don't realize what you're spoiling or what you're ruining. Like, you're just like, you're excited. So I was watching it, and I would stand in the doorway. I was supposed to be watching you know, who was coming or whatever, but I would just stand and watch them, you know, and I, I just remember taking this all in and then, and then they got in trouble because I was on watch, but I wasn't on watch and then they got in trouble and I just remember standing there and being like, huh, probably shouldn't do that, you know, and mum asked me like, were you involved in this? I was like, I was just watching them, you know, and, and I remember not getting in trouble and my siblings being mad at me because obviously I was a part of this whole thing, right? And they, I didn't get in trouble. I just put it down to the, I'm the favorite. It's, it's just, I, I'm sorry. My sister's probably watching and she's like, stop it. But I am. Uh, so I would get away with these things. But as a, a middle, almost middle child, I remember ma making this uh, uh, pattern in my life. Even as I got into a teenage years, I watched them do other things. 
and get in trouble and being like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And it actually became a good thing in some ways. And uh, my mom would say this, that, you know, you just, you learned by observing many things. And one uh, way that I observed and actually learned uh, to, to do things through observation was playing basketball. I would actually just watch tape and I would learn things and then go out and do it. My mom would say, hey, uh, that's really cool that you can do that. She would watch me like study people doing stuff and then, uh, and then go and do it. And she thought that was, that was kind of cool. And, and because she observed that in me and met, said something about it, it stuck in my brain. It like made something in me kind of go, oh, that, that is a cool thing. I should do this more. And so I began to, I think, take in or take on observation as a, as a way of learning in my life as, as I grew. And I, because I had, I had trouble in school. Anybody else? I, I just, sitting still for any length of time, other, you know, other than when I had my coffee in my hand, even as a teenager, sorry, um, not a good model, but I, I li- lived, managed, worked in a cafe since I was 14 years old. So I had coffee in my hand. And so I was just kind of like going, 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 going. I have coffee right now, as you can tell. And, and so observation was the best way for me to get the most out and like learn and get it in. And I was thinking about that as I was reading through Judges 3 today, uh, for today, and thinking, man, if we would, what if we as a generation, right, would examine and observe the scripture in Judges for such a time as this. How drastic of a change would happen in the children of God for today and how available we could be as a resource to nations, leadership, people in our community. As I was observing this, and I want you to see why it might not be what you think, but chapter three, you guys are there. Let's, let's get into it. You ready? Here we go. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. God left a people, a whole mess of people, in that nation, in that area, and did not drive them out because the people didn't do their job, right? And he left them there to what? It says there, test. And to teach that they might know war. That was the words used, to, to test and to teach so that they would know war. Say war. I don't know if there's an accent on the word war, but... But it... The Bible has a lot to say about battles, right? And a lot about warfare. And as I looked at this warfare that God was hoping they would learn, I started to drill down to what is actually the battle that's going on? What is the war that God wants them to learn? And what is the war that God wants us to learn as we look at this? So uh, I'm looking at this and saying, okay, we know this. God does for us, uh, produce certain things, provide certain aspects in our life to produce perseverance, right? The Bible tells us that. Like a tree would develop roots for a storm to be able to uphold like itself during a storm. Uh, we are being built up 
so that we can be sustainable through a season. And so in, in this season right now, I said it back in March and April and May, hey, don't miss out on what God wants to teach us in this season because it might be the roots that need to go down to teach us something so that we can be ready for what's to come. Do you remember me saying that? And as I've gone through this, I keep reminding myself, hey, don't leave the season or rush out of the season that God is wanting us to pick up on something in this season. Don't rush out without getting it, right? So, so in that same vein of thought, here we are in verse five. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They lived among, say among. So that's the key word right there. Now right in the middle amongst these people, what was their call to live? And we called this out last for us, is to be set apart. So now they're living not as God designed it. They're living among and they're supposed to be set apart. Verse five, pretty key. If we look at that, we say, okay, that's something that God called them to. They're not living. So what happened? Judges 3, 9. When the people of Israel then cried out to the Lord. Why'd they cry out? Because their life went downhill so drastically. They hit the wall again and here they are having to cry out to the Lord. The Lord raised up for them a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz. It's Caleb's younger brother. Remember Caleb, the guy who spied the land? So here's his brother being raised up. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan, something king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan something. So the land had rest, 40, had rest 40 years. So if if we just examine this real quick, what happened is they want to uh, be in the land. We talked about this last week. They came into the land. They're, they're not moving through and moving the people out. They're being disobedient by staying where they are. And so they're getting comfortable. So now we're we're hearing now they live amongst the people they're not supposed to be amongst. They're supposed to be getting rid of all of these people. We, we talked last week about why they need to get rid of them. And that was an important thing. And we talked about God's love language being obedience, right? So there's God's love language. I want to love God. I'm going to walk in obedience. They get to this point living amongst, then life just spirals out of control. Society starts to crack under the pressure, and they start crying out to God for help, and God has mercy. This is the pattern that we talked about. God has mercy. Then they have Caleb's younger brother. He's the leader, and then the pattern continues. They had rest for 40 years. Remember we talked about that? Peace. What happens after peace? Complacency. After complacency, compromise. So that's what we're anticipating. That's the pattern we said would happen, right? You guys remember that? So judges are supposed to be these people who uh, <laughs> live right and are this example for others to observe. Hey, there's godliness and we're going to follow this leader, right? So I just wanted to point out as we go through judges, you're going to see a rapid, not rapid, sorry, it's over 350 years, but you're going to see the decline Every time we bring up another judge, it's going to get more corrupt and more corrupt until we get to Samson and his story. 
But Othniel, dude, this is Caleb's brother. He's, he's witnessed and heard of this guy, Caleb, and his faith. He's picked up on it. Remember God said, hey, I want to test them and teach them war. It's a generation who doesn't understand war. So Othniel is part of that generation that, yeah, Caleb and them went to war, but we didn't know war. God has handed everything to these guys. The training wheels are still on, right? They're doing all this stuff for God with the training wheels on. God's like, okay, I'm going to lead you through this. That's why I think for Othniel's story and some of these other early uh, guys, we don't actually hear the drama because there's not really much drama to go into. The training wheels are still on and God is helping them through. And, and he actually uses this word that uh, God gave it into his hands, gave the people into his hands. You think about the picture of hands, it's an important word. Scripture describes that the enemy was given into his hands. That means he has full control. Othniel now has full control. I can, I can mold them, I can lead them, I can do whatever I want with them when it's in my hands. If it's out of my hands, right, if something's out of my hands, I don't have control, I don't have grip. But he had full grip on the enemy and, and could do what he wanted with them. That's pretty cool. God handed it over. But then they decline again. They decline again down into a pit and society begins to crumble again. The pattern goes off and we pick up in verse 15. Here it is. <clears throat> Part of the reason why I share the pattern with you because I get to skip a bunch of scripture. Not, not because I don't want to read it to you, but because we, then we can get through more. I love it. You guys ready? Check this out. Verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up them for them a deliverer, Ehud. That's a fun one to say. The son of Girah and Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent a tribute by him to Eglon, to the king of Moab, and, the Ehud, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, about a foot long. And he bounded on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back, right? He turned back to the idols near, at the idols near Gilgal and said, "I have a secret message for you, O king." And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Now remember I said PG, right? This, we're gonna PG this thing as I did school with my, or do uh, reading with my kids. I kind of changed some words. We got some kids in the room, so please excuse me. I'm not trying to change scripture. I'm just trying to be you know, helpful to the kids in the room, family. So PG version is... Uh, then he took his blade and stuck it into his belly, so the hilt was covered by the insides, and everything was coming out. He, I'm trying to do this as good as I can. He locked the door, and his guards thought he was using the facilities or the loo, right? Until they were embarrassed to be standing there. You can imagine waiting for someone to go to the bathroom. You're not in line to go, but you know they're going, and you're like, dude, what's up? Like, they got to the point where it was like, what's up? I'm, I'm going red in the face for you. So this is the point. That's how long they waited, okay? <clears throat> Meanwhile, Ehud had escaped, okay? He ran and rallied the troops took, uh, and took back Israel's freedom 
by killing 10,000 men, by waiting at the point in which they knew, he knew the enemy would pursue them across the shallow parts of the Jordan. Okay? Important as you read through that scripture, that's really important. Ehud, first of all, comes off as a messenger. Kind of a gruesome story here. But Ehud is raised up as the deliverer, right? And he comes off as a messenger. To give you some context, they have been taken over by these people. They come under this king. The king says, okay, to be uh, under me and not, you know, I'm, I'm going to pillage and seize you, or you can just give me what I, what I want, right? So they give him a gift and they take it along as, with a messenger, say, here's our taxes. And they do this repeatedly over and over and over. And so there, come, there becomes a point where this king gets complacent with it, just like we get complacent with sin in our lives sometimes. So he walks into the room, and this is not an uncommon thing. The king feels very comfortable with this messenger because Ehud has been there before, right? So when he comes back and says, hey, I have a message for you, uh, it apparently is not uh, something that scares this king or makes him feel at all afraid. Here's Ehud now with a uh, sword on his left, sorry, left thigh and he is, or right thigh, and he's reaching across with his left hand, which would have not indicated any kind of struggle because if you were a swordsman, you would have reached for your right because the sword would have been on your right side, or sorry, left, left side reaching across and that's how you would draw your sword. So this left-handed Benjamite, right, goes in, thought of as a messenger, can creep right up to the king to give him a secret message. So this is what I need to tell you. And brings out this sword, right? And plunges it right into his stomach. It disappears inside his stomach. He has to leave it there. Are you guys following? At this point, this, this is kind of gruesome. Then he crawls down into the loo, okay? Follow through the scripture, you'll find this. That he went out, he had to get out somehow, right? The exit point is down the latrine. He goes out the gutter, which would have gone into some kind of open ditch leading out, and he would have gone down inside, crawled out, and then took off. Do you think he had a plan? Yeah. When, when I look at this and I go, okay, so he planned this. If I look at it, it's just like, like this just happened. I'm like, dude, luck is on your side, right? Or like, God was like speaking to you every step of the way. Or there was an angel leading you or something. But you don't do this by chance. You do this with a king by planning it out, having been there, staked out the joint, right? You know what's happening. You know what's going to happen. You know how people are going to react and respond. So therefore, you do exactly what you know is needed. Meaning you bring the supplies, you leave Right? You go out with your people, all your people go on, but you come back so you don't look like a threat. You go into the room, you lock that door, right? Make sure that no one can come in in case somebody makes noise. You have a uh, left handed person who's not going to look like a threat also when they reach down for their sword. It's under his cloak, strapped to his thigh, right? It's concealed. He knows what he's about to do, and he gets up close to the king because he says he has a message. So he's not in any way alarmed that this is a bad thing. He can get close. When he does what he came to do, he then has an exit point, which he's already scouted out. He knows is in this room. And he can get out. He can also get down and out through an area no one would ever suspect you go, right? And then he can go back and get 10 
thousand people killed, well, how do you do that? You need an army. Do you think he was ready for that? Yes, he went to a place, a designated point. He blew a horn, which he knew everybody would hear, to rally at a point in which he knew they would go. Sounds like a strategy, doesn't it? Sounds like a plan to me. When they got to that point, they were funneled down, and some theologians have, have said, like, this, this is a point in which it would funnel the enemy down to be attackable by a smaller force without chariots. Why were they afraid of this army? Because of the chariots and the horses and the, the, the elevated level of war stuff that they would have had available to them. So here, Israel has now an upper hand because they want to attack them because you just killed our king. That's the other point. He just took out the one who was going to give strategic leadership to the army going. Now that's gone. Everybody's just angry and going full force. Sound like strategy to you? Amen? It's crazy, right? It's kind of cool. I like the Bible. It's got lots of cool stuff in it. I told you, man, we're going to get into the word, man. This is good stuff. This is the stuff my boys love, and I'm like, Dude, chill out. Like, there's other good stuff in there. But he, he can strategically make a move here because he's part of a generation. Remember what we read in verse 2? Part of a generation that was raised for battle. God left a people there, right, to test and teach the generations about war, about battle. So we see God's strategy come through and play out in verse 15 through 20. We can see that God had a plan and a purpose to raise up a generation. Othniel, he had the training wheels on. God handed it over to them. This time I'm going to raise up a, a deliverer for you under strategic direction because they're trained in battle and war. He's lived up through it. He understands it. This is Ehud with some courage and understanding of who I am and how I can help, this guy can get you through. So God raised him up and he appointed this judge. And we should be thankful for this. This points to this, that our God, while he works in strategy, he has a plan and we can trust him. Amen? In times when it doesn't make sense, we can question God and say, what is going on, man? Why? Why? Most common question I get when tough stuff happens. Why? Saying, I know, man. Like, that's, that's my answer. I know. Like, exactly. Why? I'm going to ask him face to face someday. I hope we're all standing around Jesus so he can share with us his heart. Because that's what's going to happen when we ask why. Is a father can expose his heart. You ever tell your kids no to something? You say no to something and their, their heart is broken, right? That you can tell, man, oh, this, this hurts me to say no to this. I had to say no to my kids a couple of times yesterday for, for how much candy they wanted and sugar. And like, it didn't, didn't take much to say no because I know that they know that that's just wrong, right? But then there's some stuff. It's like, I know you don't know what I know that means this is the right thing for you right now. Any parents in the house, you can relate? Like, don't run across the street. I know you want to go and play in that playground, and it looks amazing, and it's so close. You could run faster than me to get to that playground right now. That's like legit. They literally can outrun me now. And I'm like, 
you can do it. But is that right? No. So I'm gonna say, no, we're not gonna go there. We're gonna walk all the way up the street to that thing with the stripes, and we're gonna look left, and we're gonna look right, look left, and then we're gonna go if there's no cars. You know what I'm saying? So we begin to teach and train them on what is good for them, right? Come on, that's good. God is teaching and training, and I think battle there's a lot we need to look at in our own lives. Like there's a battle going on for your life, over your life, over my life, right now. Ephesians 6, 12 says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a battle going on, folks, over your life, over my life. The battle exists because of our choice to be in sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The, the word of God tells us this. Because of Adam's sin, or, that original uh, pattern exists. And so because of that, we are all in this sinful world, watching it decay and watching it digress. And so we encounter consequences. We encounter things that come with a fallen world. And because of that, we are in this constant battle. And so if we haven't thought through this strategically, how we're going to face the battle, then we haven't got the upper hand. We're probably dealing with life as it comes at us. And if you're anyone who deals with training or teaching, you know that's the wrong way to go with anything. It's about being ready it's about being secure in that readiness and trained and ready for whatever comes your way. Nurses, doctors, first responders in the room, you know this, like you train, you grill yourself in certain things to be responding certain ways without even thinking about it, you go there. Because you know, you, you can't just think on the fly about what's gonna come at you today. And when it comes to our lives and the area of the battle of evil that's over your life, it's the same in that God desires to train and teach us in these things, spiritual battles, so that we're ready to take it on. So I'm going to talk about something we don't talk about enough in church, and that is sin. Because I think the battle, if we're real, look at the, the underlying battle here is not with the people that are in that nation still. The battle is happening while they're amongst those people they should have taken out in the first place. And I'll make this point real quick on that. Right, real quick, sin is walking away from God's design best for us, okay? Don't want us to think about sin in some way, shape, or form that's not biblical. That This is us walking God has best, and we choose something else, right? Can you, can you guys go with that? We said that some parts of us are still catching up to the fact that we're under new management. You're under new leadership. If you have given your life to Christ, the blood of Jesus covers you. Your life, you're under new management. So when I told you guys, like when the enemy tempts me, I'm like, yo, go talk to management. I'm under new management. You're talking to the wrong guy. You're tempting the wrong dude. Go talk to Jesus who conquered sin and the grave, come on. Enemy, in other words, get out of my face. You there with me? When it comes to dealing with sin, what we end up dealing with though as we're tempted and enter into something maybe that becomes a habit or something that's rough and wrong, 
what we're really dealing with is the underlying lie, underlying thing of believing a lie. What, what happened with Adam and Eve was they were tempted, right, by a deceiver who lied to them. Didn't he? He lied to them. And that's how he gets us into sin. He'll lie to you, and if you can believe the lie, he can get you to sin. If you can believe that you deserve more, if you believe the lie, you deserve more than this, than what God has given you, what are you going to do? Walk away from God's design best for you. He never designed us to look out at others and say, oh, I should, be, I should have more like them. I should, I, should, I should be just like the Joneses. The Smiths have more than me. I probably should be getting more. Did God design us to do that? No. Sin is walking away from God's design best for us. So our eyes are supposed to be on him. And the enemy is going to say, if I can get your eyes off of him and lie to you to look at others and compare your life, I got you. I got you. Right? Now I can just twist you. I, you're right in my hands. Just like Othniel had the, the, the enemy. And he can play and he can mess with you, twist your emotions. And, in college, I had this group of friends that we would meet and talk about sin and talk about issues. Talk about behaviors that would act out in us. But the one thing that stuck with me with that group was this, that ultimately all the sin we talked about was not the real issue. That there was an underlying lie and we would help each other try to look for those. And that was why we met. What's the lie you're believing, Bryce? Why are you doing that? What's the, what's the lie behind that one? Why are you doing that? That was real talk. So as I thought about us dealing with sin this week, I went to the place that I dealt with sin best in Scripture, and that is in Psalm 51. If you guys have your Bibles, I'd love you to just earmark that because I can't get through it all today. But if you have any way to mark that 51, uh, Psalm 51 and, and look through that for yourself, I would love for you to go there because it maps out how we deal with sin and undercut strategically what the enemy would want you to do in these areas of habit or, or just areas he has maybe perceived control in your life. And the first thing that happens here, you understand David sinned pretty uh, crazy sin. He, he slept with somebody else's wife and then killed her husband. And he feels bad and he repents. And so this is, this is the conversation he has and what he does in following that up. First, he acknowledges the sin. For I know my transgressions, verse three, and my sin is ever before me. So he's there. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. My sin is there, God. I acknowledge it. I'm re it's real. The second thing he does is he asks for forgiveness. Right? In verse 4 through 9, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So whatever comes at me, God, I understand. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. 
So he, he's saying like, God, I, I'm sorry. I, whatever judgment's coming, I, I get it. I, please help me. He says in verse seven, purge me with hyssop, right? Clean me. The third thing strategically that he does in dealing with sin, the battle of sin is accepting forgiveness. See, many of us stay stuck in this repetition. I think the children of Israel did this often as they didn't accept their forgiveness, so they kept perpetuating in the same sin. But David doesn't, and the reason he doesn't is he does this in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, God. He takes time to say, God, uh, I, I'm, I get it. You've forgiven me. I am now wanting to be clean and new and fresh. So, God, I accept it. Thank you. Thank you. And then verse 10 continues. And I would say this is the, the final step outside of continuing dedication to the Lord is asking for renewal. So, God, I want to walk in renewal not just stop here. I don't want to stop here and camp out. We talked about camping out being that place where you get, you stop in something, you camp out, what happens? I get complacent. Church, we, we need to move away from complacency, don't we? And so to, to stay away strategically from getting complacent with our sin, David does this and I copy him. I say, when I'm, when I'm done with my sin, I accept my forgiveness as I get on my knees and I wait on the Lord for him to fill me up to go out so I don't fall into the same hole. God, renew my strength. I have gone through this sin, gone through the battle. And I'm coming out the other side. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you, I accept it. But God, now I need your strength to move forward. Amen? When you're praying with someone who's battling addictions, uh, uh, thoughts of suicide, thoughts of negativity, right? And you're praying and you're intervening. We talked about standing in the gap. You know somebody's stuck in sin. Pray for their renewal strength because you know if you've ever received peace or rest, how clear your thought becomes and how much you feel like you can conquer anything. Amen? So for people that are stuck in sin, pray for their sleep. Pray for their rest. Pray for their peace so when they can, they can stand on the mountaintop and say, ah, I got this, right? And that's, that's what God can do in renewal is he can give you clarity and peace and that clarity can give you just what you need, I think, to strategically think about what comes next in your day as we battle through. As we talk about this and talk about sin, some of you are thinking about others you're working with and walking with and discipleship and this is key. The war against sin in our lives is won with repentance. And so if you want to give a strategy to someone who's a new believer that, that will help their discipleship, help their journey, is give them a strategy, a step-by-step -step on how to walk through repentance because sin can trip us up and hold us and have us stuck, but God gave us freedom. And this is how we Work our battles. This is how we fight our battles. We sang that last week. And as we were singing it out last week as a church, I thought of this. Luke chapter nine, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him first deny himself, take up his cross and daily follow me. We think about Jesus and just picking up from him and following him. What does the cross represent? 
the cross for us as followers of Christ is strategic victory by God over sin and death forever and amen. Right? Like the cross, like the place where like a stake in the ground literally was driven into the dirt so that sin would forever be done. And Jesus even said from the top of that cross, it is finished. So the sin that's in your life right now, remember, is conquered. The stake has been driven in the ground. Time for that sin to be done and worked over is right now. Strategically, it has been taken. But for us as followers of Christ, we need to step in and take up our role, which is to what? Right here, Jesus said, would come after me. Let him deny himself. The root of that lie is gonna be selfishness. So first you're gonna deny yourself this morning. What do I wanna do? What's my comfort? No. What does he desire? What is he calling me to? So this morning it might be to cry out to God. This morning it might be to stand in the gap and pray. It might be to repent on some, on some level. It might be that you've repented, but you didn't accept it. You didn't receive it, or you didn't ask for renewal. But there's a step for every single one of us in the room this morning to drive that stake deeper, to tell the enemy, hey, under new management, go talk to the owner, amen? So we're gonna stand, we're gonna worship victoriously this morning. And we're gonna worship victoriously because we're gonna declare God has the victory, amen? Come on, I wanna get an amen. Amen, God has a victory.